This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 28, 2022, the So Much Free Speech edition. David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. And that, dear friends, is our new theme. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, Yale University Law School, John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning. How exciting is it to have a new theme? I love it. It's so rousing. And who do we have to thank for this new theme, John? They might be giants. They are giants because they are giving me this permanent smile from listening to that. It's, oh. What a joy that is to listen to. It's It just puts the equilibrium of the cosmos back in order. It's so joyful. Uh, that was our new theme from They Might Be Giants. We will hopefully be talking to John and John from They Might Be Giants in a few weeks, maybe as a Slate Plus segment to hear about their process in, in creating it. Uh, but we're so proud to have it, so thrilled to have it, and uh, hope you guys enjoy it. This week on the GabFest, will Elon Musk make Twitter better or worse than the Biden administration is struggling with the southern border, with asylum, with the politics of immigration? What's their way out of it? And then will the Supreme Court gut the Establishment Clause and allow everyone to pray whenever they're doing any government business at all times? <laughs> Plus, of course... We're going to have cocktail chatter. But you can only pray if you do government business at the 50-yard line. That's true. And there is no 50-yard line at the DMV. So pretty safe. And GapFest listeners, an exciting announcement or maybe a pre-announcement, which is that we are coming back to a live stage. We're going to be doing a live GapFest, our first since before the pandemic, in person at 6th and I in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, June 29th in the evening of Wednesday, June 29th. Mark your calendars, make your plans, get the babysitter. Uh, we will also plan on probably doing a pre-show cocktail hour for some super fans, but we're going to be back at 6th and I in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, June 29th. More details to come and ticket info. We're really excited to see you in person. And there will also be a live streaming option for those of you who cannot make it to D.C. Elon Musk will almost certainly own Twitter in a few months after he pays $44 billion, which of course is only a small fraction of his, his electric car slash solar slash rocket fortune to get hold of the platform where he is a dominant user. Musk hunted and caught Twitter apparently because he really, really wants it. It's not a great business. He really wants to own it. And now he is the dog that caught the postal truck. He is going to have to deal with the many, many, many problems of owning one of the gnarliest and trickiest of all platforms. So, Emily, why is he buying it? And there's so many reasons. Why do you think he's buying it? I kind of think he wants a new toy. It's a big new toy. It's an important brand. It's going to get him into the news constantly. He has what seems to me to be kind of um, 
completely ignorant ideas about free speech and content moderation. It's as if he just like woke up one day and was like, free speech is great and doesn't know the history of the last, you know, 20 years in which all of these internet platforms started with this very um, libertarian idea of free speech and then realized that the platforms then became just like unusable and terrible places to be. Uh, Yeah, I don't really have another theory. It just seems like he thinks it might be fun and he could really wreck it along the way. Or maybe not. Yeah, given its current fetid state, could you wreck it anymore? So let's dig into this, the sort of central question, I think, here. As you just noted, Emily, and as others have noted, the idealism, the gleam in the eye of young Jack Dorsey and young Mark Zuckerberg was, we will set up these platforms. They will be free. People communicate and connect. It will be free speech, free the world over. The problem, of course, is that they become cesspools, that lots of things are free speech. They are, in the sense, they are legal. They are, you're allowed to say them. You're allowed to share them. And yet they are just vile and unwelcome and unappealing and, and that it's easier for the jerks and the assholes and the bullies to create chaff and garbage and ugliness and harassment and abuse. It's easier for them to create lots of it than is for the people who want to simply share wise thoughts and with a larger audience to do it. And no one wants to live in a place that's taken over by bullies and harassers and liars and abusers. And so all of these platforms, which begin with this premise of free speech, have, of course, back away from it. John, you are a super user of Twitter. You are like a pioneer of Twitter. And do you think that what Musk wants to do, which is sort of liberate it from some of its moderation is welcome or doable. Well, yeah, I was going back and looking at the early days of Twitter when it was such a different and more useful place, which isn't to say that it doesn't still have interesting people and fun things and there aren't daily jewels that you can find. It's just you have to soak your ankles in um, sewage to to wade through them. But I think before answering your question, which is the right one, I think there are two categories. One is whether his stated goals, Musk's stated goals for Twitter make any sense and whether it will make the thing better. And the other is whether this has anything to do with Twitter itself and or whether Twitter is kind of the host body for Elon Musk's larger mayhem. And that is either simply he's enjoying or experiencing or looking for a place to, uh, you know, have a therapeutic evacuation of his mind um, and kind of just be (laughs) an imp. Oh, my God. That is one of the greatest John Dickerson phrases of all time. The therapeutic evacuation of the mind. So that seems to be part of what this is about. The other thing is, if you are a, a mega billionaire, are you basically like an autocrat in the world? Which is to say, if you are Vladimir Putin or Viktor Orban or Donald Trump, you need a disinformation apparatus to make the world as you would like it. And, and that knocks down a bunch of barriers um, absence you from a bunch of norms that you might have to deal with. And so it's good if you're going to remake the world to have a, a a media arm that allows you to remake it. And so if in this case, tw- he would use Twitter. And so I don't know what the answer is to that. But that would be the two categories and, and the personal aims of, of Elon Musk, I'm not quite so sure about. But let's go back to your original question. I'll try and do it quickly. So we are stuck in a thicket of shallow concerns in our world right now. And more free speech 
based on what we've seen from social media right now, doesn't appear to be the answer of getting us out of that thicket. It may be a good thing for some reason, but the traditional free speech, the argument that the public town square needs to be uh, enlivened would be more enlivened if you actually made it like the original public town squares in which everybody had to meet together and had to sit down, face each other and work through their issues. Twitter is built to do none of that. It is it, its algorithms and its business models built on outrage and um, freaking people out, not bringing them together. If you really wanted to have the kind of reasoning that goes on at the town hall as it was traditionally used, you would do deliberative democracy, which people have been working on. It's really slow and painful, but you'd spend your money there. This money is not going to improve the state of dialogue. Emily, going back to your original uh, skepticism, so you you certainly seem to be suggesting you're on the, the side of that more free speech is not actually welcome, that in fact it's the the moderating influence is necessary. Why is that the case? What is wrong with free speech as Musk seems to understand it? Well, Musk has been talking about the idea that as long as speech is legal, it should be allowed on Twitter. And as you were, and John were both just explaining, that is not a world people want to live in. That includes adult pornography and spam and a lot of um, hate speech and harassment, at least under American law. Um, And for all those reasons, the platforms don't operate like the town square. They operate like the mall, where there are mall cops and there is private enforcement. And I think what John's point about anonymity and the difference between people actually gathering together and looking each other in the face while they talk versus the, you know, completely abstract, um, you don't even know where the humans are exactly in the picture of... um, how it all works, like that reality of social media is very different for speech. And we've seen um, some of the damaging effects that social media rumors and um, false information can have in terms of ethnic violence in lots of countries, in terms of effects on elections, you know, countries like Russia manipulating other people's democracies, not necessarily in a determinative fashion, but still, like you can see all of that happening. And so the notion that we're just going to throw away all the constraints that the platforms have arrived at, they had to be forced into adopting those constraints. And it's not as if it all works so well. I just find the kind of heedless way Musk talks about this incredibly unappealing. It's like he just has doesn't know anything about how this has all worked or even just like what the kind of basic legal principles are. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just a big elitist snob that I think that he should like know one thing about this first um, and bother to like get some historical knowledge and like talk to some people who do know about this. But it does bug me. I mean, even his idea of open algorithms, open source algorithms, which sound great, completely, you know, skip right by the fact that it's the spammers who want the open source algorithm because then they can manipulate it and game it better. I just feel like it's as if all the thinking and work of building these platforms like never happened. And instead of having an analysis that takes into account their weaknesses in light of that historical context, it's like, oh, everyone else did it wrong. Somehow I'm going to get it right. I totally agree with everything you just said. And now I'm going to add the big but. The big but is Elon Musk is an exciting, brilliant person who, by and large, is having a pretty good effect on the world. That that Tesla 
and his solar ventures and even arguably his rocket ventures and his tunneling ventures, which are a little bit more quixotic and certainly reflect a kind of fantasia about settling Mars and so forth that I think is deeply unrealistic. But uh, and yet but even they, he's great. even those even those I think he's he has a really strong brain. It's like it's an engineering brain. It's a particular kind of brain. And what he has done with the companies that he's built has been astonishing. And I I don't find him universally admirable. I don't find his views on on everything appealing. I don't think what he I think what he said about Twitter so far is as you said, Emily has been pretty ignorant. On the other hand, if he becomes the owner of this, if he will become the owner, if he is responsible for it, I am pretty confident that he will do something interesting and he will approach these problems in interesting ways and seek solutions that are interesting. They may be interesting and deeply unappealing and they may be interesting and, you know, allow the spammers to take it over even more, allow abusive, vicious people to have even greater presence on it. And that will make it a hellscape and people won't want to participate as much and then it'll be problematic for different reasons but maybe maybe he'll he'll find some other way to approach it i i mean i'm not i'm not as i'm not delusional to think oh elon musk is you know one 49 year old or whatever one 49 year old guy is smarter than the five thousand people who work at twitter who are all really smart and who have, have you know banged their head against this problem but i do expect that he will he will approach it in a different and interesting way and while that you know, may mean that Twitter is gets ruined. I personally don't think Twitter is such a treasure of human civilization that the ruination of Twitter is, you know, it's not like losing the library to Alexandria would be my view <laughs> if it does get ruined. Fair enough. But I would, um, first of all, that final point is a great, is a great one, which is, you know, it's, it can use all the help it gets. So why, why not try? Uh, obviously we may be we may be introduced to all of the horrors about why you may not try because we are in a super high state of political inflammation and all energy in the life right now suggests it's really easy to increase that inflammation. But I find his process um, a mess for the opposite reason you do, David, which is he does have all of, he does have this exciting and interesting brain, which looks at things differently, which is why his original take on Twitter is so disappointing because it is so hidebound. It is so, you know, there's the apocryphal story, um, which I might tell wrong about, uh, about Henry Ford. If I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said, give me a faster carriage. What Tesla did was set the original question, which was, we are burning up the planet. We must take on this huge issue of climate change by creating an electric vehicle. That was setting the right question. That was taking on the big visionary thing. With Twitter, adding more speech is not um, the big visionary response. It's kind of a predictable, not very, as Emily has articulated, not very smart uh, response. He's also playing this sleight of hand where he says free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, to Twitter is the digital town hall. The reason the town square idea is so flawed, going back to this idea of looking at people in, in, in the face, is that what looking people in the face does is the other important part of free speech. And what that is, is that it holds you to account for the things you say. 
It means that what you say uh, has to be bound by some truths. It has to be bound because of because when you're in front of somebody else, you don't act like a total cretin as much as you would when you're anonymous. And that discipline of fact is really hard to maintain in our current moment. And that's the big problem that needs to be solved. That's the climate uh, crisis level issue here in the public square. And the fact that he's not only ducking that crisis but adding more fuel to it with his, uh, you know, original notions is why this seems to be so far below the image of or the idea of, of Elon Musk as a great new kind of thinker. I mean, we also just have this very concrete question. Is he going to let Donald Trump back onto Twitter? I know Trump said he's not interested, but I can't believe that's true. And having Trump back on Twitter is going to change American discourse. Now, if Trump is the Republican nominee for president, that's a lot of that um, invective will be back anyway, but it has muzzled Trump to have him absent from Twitter. That has really been different. And so, you know, that decision alone has real implications. Yeah, but if he let Trump back on Twitter and Trump join, it's not clear to me that there's a right answer to that or that that having tr- Trump present or not present on Twitter is good, better or worse for democracy. I actually don't know the answer to that. I'm not so certain that the answer is, oh, not having Trump on Twitter is good. I think actually not having Trump on Twitter, in one thing, it has, it has distracted people from the wickedness that is Trump. Oh, I don't. I mean, the wickedness that is Trump has worked so well for him because it is also the entertainment and the um, volatile outrage that John was talking about that is Trump. I mean, it was extraordinarily effective for him as a communication tool. I want to hit two points before we leave here. One, I want to talk about China, Emily, then I want you to talk about Europe. So I do think Musk is going to end up in knots with China. Tesla is hugely invested in China. And Musk wants to spend his time avoiding offending China. And he has. He's largely he's largely avoided in his career offending China because he knows that a lot of his IP could be stolen by China and that he could lose a huge market and lose a huge production capacity if he offended the Chinese government. And And I think probably the Chinese government sees this as a wonderful point of leverage against him to have Twitter. He might end up having to feel that he has to choke China and Twitter to protect his other businesses. And uh, that would be a bummer. I don't think he can have a freewheeling conversations about China on Twitter and also have Tesla operating vigorously in China. I don't think he can have both of those. So he's going to kind of have to pick one. Is that going to be freewheeling conversations about China internationally or within China? Well, Twitter is banned in China. Uh, but I still feel like there's there are probably issues there. Well, and you you could imagine mischief makers on the left who have been so outraged at at what Musk is doing with Twitter or or the fact that he's taking it over or looks like he's taking it over. It, you could mischief makers would just dump a whole bunch of anti-China propaganda on Twitter and the Chinese officials would say to Musk, you have to fix this. And he would say, well, we have free speech, even though the free speech rules look pretty porous to you um, and pretty uh, selectively applied. The Chinese would say, yeah, well, you should fix that content if you want to do business in our country. Emily, bring us home by just discussing whether the Europeans could constrain Musk even if he doesn't want to be constrained? Yes, they could. The Europeans look like they are about to enact the Digital Services Act, which is going to regulate tech platforms. Um, It's going to be really interesting to watch this. Daphne Keller at Stanford Center for the Internet Society has this whole great thick rundown of what is in this new European Act. But basically, they're going to do audits. Um, They're going to ask for 
showing that uh, you're abiding by your own rules. They're going to let people complain about content. Um, and, you know, the platforms have to respond. They don't have to take it down, but they have to show they have some kind of process. They have to label deep fakes. There's a whole range of regulations here that are not trying to directly interfere with the content moderation rules, but are trying to kind of hold the platforms accountable and also crucially open them up to being studied by independent researchers, which is maybe the most important thing of all. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. You can become a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This week's bonus segment, we're going to talk about an incredibly prescient John Dickerson story from 11 years ago about the rise of birtherism, why it never really went away, and how it still sort of haunts us. If you go again to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member. You also get member-exclusive episodes on other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus, you get no ads on any Slate podcasts. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. What is Title 42, Emily? What is its legal status as of this second? (laughs) So Title 42 is a section of a law from the 1940s that gives the CDC some powers and a health emergency. And the Trump administration in March 2020 interpreted the law to say that given the pandemic, they were going to be turning around lots and lots of immigrants at the border. So basically, it was using the pandemic as an excuse not to let asylum seekers into the country. In this moment where, you know, the pandemic was a real public health crisis, at the time, Democrats said, this is not what this law is for. And so you're seeing some waffling from some Democrats, um, especially in vulnerable Senate elections. So who were the people who were affected by Title 42? Who were who was not affected? If I have a work visa to come into the United States and I've, you know, as a guest worker visa of some sort or a green card 
that entitles me to work. I could still have come into the U.S., right? Yeah. People who had legal immigration purposes for being here were still allowed in. These are people who are trying to come in through our asylum policies. They're saying, I have a credible fear of going home. And the question is, what kind of process do they get? Title 42 meant that effectively they got zero process. And combined with the Remain in Mexico policy, which the Supreme Court heard a case about this week, that's another fight going on. There were just a lot of people who just never made it in at all. And the assumption is that if this policy is listed, there will be something on the order of between, at the low end, 8,000 a day or 18,000 people a day who are seeking to come in, seeking asylum, who will now have to be processed at the border, and some significant fraction of them will be let into the United States, presumably. I mean, maybe. The truth is that with Remain in Mexico still in place, it's if that if the Supreme Court says that it has to continue, um, which seemed certainly possible after our argument this week, it's not really clear to me how many more of these people are going to be let into the United States as opposed to detained at the border or held in Mexico. But there will be some more due process for them. They'll get to try to make their credible fear claim um, in the way that they did before March 2020. It wasn't like everybody won at all. Most people lost. But you got to at least try. And yes, there were some people who were seen as not at all a risk of violence or who had, you know, some kind of humanitarian claim. And those people got into the United States. John. I thought DHS was saying that their solution to the fears that they aren't going to be able able to handle the influx, um, which, by the way, the numbers are already quite high. In part, they're high because it's some repeat offenders. Because of Title 42, people are immediately kicked out of the United States. And unlike the previous policy, they can try again without a big penalty. So the numbers are very high, but that might be slightly artificially inflated. But I thought the the, the answer for why with, if Title 42 is lifted, DHS is going to be able to handle it is that there would they would set up centers in the United States or they would go back to the policy of releasing people into the United States who have family relatives and so forth who then would come back, presumably, though, of course, one of the problems is not all of them do, to their day in court, that it, they wouldn't all be sent to Mexico. So, yes, I mean, I think they will be detaining more people in the United States, um, and it's possible there is a fraction of people who will be released because they have family ties, etc. I just want to note that, you know, we do have ways of helping to ensure those people come back to court. Ankle bracelets have been shown to have um, a good effect. There's a new app that um, DHS is using. So I just want to, well, I mean, I think there's sort of, To take a step back, there are kind of two questions here. There's enforcement of these existing laws. And then there's another question about whether, you know, policy-wise, forget the politics for a second, it would be totally fine to have a lot more people immigrate into the United States. I mean, maybe it would be better to do it legally than illegally. But, you know, this idea that, like, we're being overrun by immigrants who we don't want, it's not actually, it doesn't make a whole lot of economic sense or, you know, even social sense if you're thinking about how many more people the country could hospitably hold. Look, I think the, the country, I'm all Matt Iglesias, one billion Americans. But there is something, A, there's, the politics of this are appalling for Democrats. And so the fact the fact that it would be good as policy is, is sort of runs up against the reality, which is that it is wildly unpopular as it's arranged. And there are a bunch of Democratic senators who don't want to be lifting Title 42. The, the other thing is that I... I am all for, you know, major immigration reform and letting lots and lots of people in. I 
find it bizarre and not great that the, the major way that people are coming to the United States is they're coming by the tens of thousands a day and seeking asylum. There has to be some system where you're like allowing people to apply. You have a robust guest worker program so that people who just want to come for economic reasons to work briefly can come and work briefly. You have a longer-term immigration policy, which is based in some sense on the economic value of the people who are coming so that the U.S. benefits in the best way. I don't think that a system whereby you're a magnet for for hundreds of thousands and millions of people from one small part of the world, in, namely Central America and somewhat Mexico, is, is a great way to have an immigration policy. That seems like a very screwed up system. And to have it based on asylum where, where everyone is coming and making this claim of, of credible fear is, it's just, it's, it's chaotic and it is not rational. And there's, it isn't, even if you want there to be lots more immigrants, this is definitely not the way to get lots more immigrants into the country in a cogent way. So I'm not saying the solution is to not welcome people and not give them a chance to make their case, but it is surely not the basis of a cogent immigration policy. And John, I want to turn this into a question, which is like this feels, and I, this is not my analogy, but it is very much like the situation that, that Republicans got themselves into about Obamacare. Democrats are in the same similar position, which is that they, they know they didn't like the Trump policy, but they have nothing coherent to replace the Trump policy with. Well, they have two problems. As a matter of execution, there's a very big question about whether they can just handle the glut of migrants, which will traditionally increases in the spring and summer. So this is just a big existing problem. We have seen in a variety of different areas where acute problems that existed before COVID were exacerbated by them. And this one is exacerbated in the sense that it's there's an on-off switch for the change in immigration policy. So it's, it's of the moment, um, but our capacity as a country and as a political process to handle these kinds of enormous problems in this moment of high inflammation is really, 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 really low. So the health of the democracy is not in a place where it can handle these bigger issues you guys have been talking about. What's happening at the moment is you have an administration that is seems to be arguing, as people hear it, that masks on planes should stay on, but that the borders should be open. And that is a catastrophic place for the Democratic Party to be in. And so some Democrats would say, no, no, we'll just explain it. See, we'll show that we can take care of this. First of all, very hard to do without the money and the manpower. I know that DHS has a 20-page presentation about how this is all going to work out. They had a presentation for how Afghanistan was going to work out too. Things get complicated. So this wouldn't be a chance not to just be in a difficult, difficult political place, but also then to show that an administration that was brought in to show they could execute actually couldn't execute. So this could be a doubly bad moment for the administration. But the second problem is not only is it a question of execution, do they have the right policies in place to handle this, but also as a matter of politics, those who are arguing this should go forward and that the, these migration, the migrants should be handled through a more orderly process have no kind of values-based argument that they can give Democratic candidates to say, yes, we should do this because it's consistent with our values about, a, you know, America as a country of liberty and that treats them, you know, our neighbors fairly and so forth and so on. There's no political argument for pushing back. And remember the context, they're already stumbling to try and find political arguments to push back to explain why Joe Biden is to, isn't to blame for the horrible inflation. So to add another challenge to Democrats Democratic candidates, the tough ones who are running in districts where it's not all Democrats on this kind of an issue is incredibly difficult. And finally, 
this is the kind of issue, if you look at the polling, that inflames Republicans. And if off-year elections are all about which base is more inflamed, increasing migration under, uh, and removing Title 42 restrictions does very little to excite Democrats and does an extraordinary amount to excite Republicans. I was struck by a poll I read this morning that only 20% of Latino voters put immigration as their top issue. Yeah. And I suspect, in fact, that that the policies, at least as they are depicted in the media that people are consuming, are driving more Latino voters towards Republicans than they are keeping them in the Democratic Party. I mean, I think one of the reasons for the switch of of Latino voters to the Republican Party is is the sense of the, the difference in immigration policies. And I would just add that it's not only an issue that Republicans care about. Say, for example, in a Pew poll, 68% of Republicans said immigration was very important. Only 34% of Democrats did. But in places like Arizona and Nevada, it's even higher, right? So you have places where key races are taking place where this is an issue that particularly inflames the Republicans. And while all those bigger issues are quite important and people may have very, very strong views about them, their ability to change and affect those issues is going to be highly diminished if the party that's in power is on the opposite side of the issue. You know, it's so sad because it is clear like that maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm a dope here, but it's clear that there's a pretty great compromise that would exist, which to get lots of legal immigrants in, you seek to have lots of legal immigrants, especially high-skilled ones. You have a ro- very robust guest worker program for people who just are coming. They are guaranteeing they're not going to stay. They're going to work you know, in seasonal jobs or work temporarily. You have extremely tight limits on asylum, very little tolerance for people who are undocumented, and then amnesty for people who are here, who've been here, and who've contributed richly to society. That would be a really good system Everyone knows this. Even, you know, Chamber of Commerce Republicans know that that would be a really good system. We'll never get there. And instead, we're going to have this just chaos and catastrophe where we're, we act in these inhumane ways towards people who are coming and don't never get a policy which actually benefits the country. And it makes me sad. I want to stick up for asylum law, which I don't know why you're so super down on. It is hard to get asylum. You have to show credible fear of persecution in particular categories, which the Trump administration narrowed. You know, some of the classic ways people try to get in from Latin America is to say that they're neighborhoods are overrun by gangs or that the police are coming and like getting their kids and there is you know people are getting killed so it's not as if they don't have some kind of claim in the sort of classic meaning of asylum that we've had you know since the holocaust effectively and we are seeing in ukraine a willingness to think about asylum and taking people in because of you know difficult and dangerous conditions that does not seem to extend to parts of the world um you know where people aren't white and so i just want to like think through that a little bit i i know that having lots of people at the border um who seem like they mostly just want to get here because like Things are worse at home, freaks people out. But like we, <sighs> asylum law has been so important for the world. It's like one of the things we should actually be proud of. I guess I always come back to the same thing. And I say this on every episode. I totally understand that if you are somebody who is your neighborhood in Honduras is unlivable and it's very difficult for a child and being pulled into violence. Like I understand why you might seek asylum in Mexico. It is not clear to me why the United States is 
implicated in the asylum of someone who is three countries away? Why is it that the United States should be involved in that? I mean, it's like if the claim is like, I need to be safe. Well, it's not the United States' job to guarantee safety for everyone. And it's not it, like we do function in this magnet and asylum becomes the thing that people use to get into this country, which is more attractive economically for people than Mexico would be. But it's not that is not to me the answer Right. Well, you're talking about like this emergency sense that if your life is at risk once you're in Mexico, it's not. And that's good enough. I mean, what the real problem here. I'm not saying it's not good enough. I'm saying it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I uh, concede that it's terrible. I just don't think that the United States economic policy can be based on the premise that there are literally 1.6 million migrant encounters every year. That is not a good policy. Right. I mean, look, like there's this basic problem, which is that there are a lot of people in the world who would rather live somewhere else. And we don't have any kind of rational system for dividing up the the where people should go based on how deserving they are. Um, that is international. Like we just don't. We the countries have never cooperated to that level. And so then you end up with the border countries of places that are unstable and um, you know, like Turkey or Mexico, taking a huge share of people. Like, uh, that's not really fair either. So it is this just enormous worldwide problem. And I understand why people feel like asylum law in some ways is broken. It's just that it also is this commitment to human rights, which is really important. And I would argue that countries like the United States, because we are wealthier, like should assume more of the burden. Um, It's just the current system is clearly deeply frustrating and causes all these political problems. Free speech everywhere. Free speech at the 50-yard line. Free speech and not a drop to drink. The Supreme Court this week, in addition to hearing the Remain in Mexico case, also heard arguments in an important free speech, free exercise establishment clause case about a Washington state football coach, Coach Kennedy, at a public high school who began conducting prayers at the 50-yard line after games, the school district told him he couldn't do that because he was on the clock for work. And as a public employee, his sectarian prayer was problematic for various reasons Emily's going to get into. Uh, Coach Kennedy is going to win. The conservatives on this court will find any way they can to protect the Christian right to exercise religion. But it's a complicated and interesting case, and I suspect we will have different views on it. So, Emily, what are Coach Kennedy's arguments His argument, this is his free exercise of religion. And he's doing this interesting slate of hand. He is saying to the Supreme Court that all he wants is to be able to quietly pray by himself at the 50-yard line for 20 seconds after a game. In fact, that ignores this whole slew of facts, which is that he started out with those kinds of prayers and nobody really cared. And then students started joining him. It became kind of a thing. And at least a couple of students said to their parents that they felt pressured to join these prayers in order to get playing time. And then the school said to him, like, hey, you need to do this by yourself away from the kids um, in a way that doesn't interfere with your duties and doesn't make it seem like we are putting our stamp of approval. We are endorsing your religion or the kids are feeling coerced. 
And for a few weeks, he complied, but then he called all the newspapers, had a big public prayer in which lots of people rushed the field, and it was like, a, you know, a media circus. So the notion that this is some quiet, like, 20-second thing he's doing all by himself, that is not how the facts ended up. And at oral argument, it was striking to hear Justice Alito and some of the other conservatives try to dial it back to this notion that, you know, okay, yes, he's a state employee and government employees don't have the same First Amendment rights as everybody else, at least according to Supreme Court precedent. But well, he was just quietly trying to pray, and he does have freedom of religion um, rights, um, and that the school district was kind of over its skis in saying, well, we can't let him do this because we're endorsing religion. And, you know, really what's at issue here is whether we're going to still have an establishment clause that means anything. Like, do we think that there should be school prayer, basically, and that as long as kids can't show evidence of actually being coerced, which is already illegal under the free exercise clause, that this is all just going to kind of happen. And we're not going to think of schools that are places that are non-sectarian in a sort of pure way anymore. And I think that is totally where the Supreme Court is heading. And it's going to be a sea change in American life because we have not allowed so school prayer in this kind of public way since the 60s and um, and certainly since the 90s when the Supreme Court said that a high school couldn't have a rabbi give a prayer at a high school graduation. Can you help me understand something, Emily, which is there's, there's the issues that are at play kind of in the public question, and then there's what's actually before the court. There was seemed to be in the arguments this question of whether the school district had based its entire claim on the idea that they didn't want to run afoul of the Establishment Clause and therefore they had to stop him from doing this. That the question of coercion, which Elena Kagan brought up, actually wasn't a part of what's before the court. So A, is that actually true? And is the court confined to only evaluate the reasoning of the lower court and would this be a situation where if the lower court only dealt with establishment clause and didn't deal with this much more interesting question of coercion that they would have to send it back down and say you have to deal with this because this is a part of the case which you didn't address which therefore makes this kind of a a, a shorn off or blunt examination of all these issues uh, because of the way it came before the supreme court yeah, those are great questions. I think what happened in this case was that this question of endorsing religion became the kind of legal channel that the district court and the appeals court used to rule in favor of the school district. And the reason for that is, like, that's been good law up until now. The Supreme Court still has a test for endorsement on the books. And I think if you take a step back, it, you know, since the 80s, when Justice O'Connor wrote about this in terms of, like, erecting a crash in a town square, for example, we the Supreme Court has said that the Establishment Clause prevents endorsement, that we don't want the state to get behind one particular kind of expression of faith, because that's not like how separation of church and state works in America. So I don't think like it's understandable that the case got um, came up to the Supreme Court on sure. this endorsement test. 
Kagan is right that there's also pretty good evidence in the record of coercion, given what the students were saying, I think the Supreme Court, yes, could on its own say, well, wait a second, we see all this in the record, we're going to also rule on that. Or they could send it back to the lower courts for more development of the record, which was that what at least one of the lawyers suggested. So those options are available to them. I, I just think the conservative majority doesn't really care about these questions. But yes, good questions for you to ask. It is striking, as with these anti-trans bills, how much of American life seems to revolve around high school sports these days. I want to make a slightly different point. I think there's an interesting parallel to the don't say gay issue here. And the interesting parallel is that it's this question about when is it appropriate for teachers to share, share themselves in important ways that reveal who they are and invite students to join in that. I think the impulse to discourage teachers from talking about their families and their identities is not completely different from the impulse to discourage them from expressing their extremely important religious identity and the extremely important role that faith plays in their life. And I just think it's an interesting parallel. I think that when you have teachers who are very religious and very Christian, who are public school teachers, like that's a significant part of their life. And we do ask them to not share that and not bring that to, with them to, to school and not bring it to the classroom. And I think that's that's a real genuine tension that people who are secular or who are, who, who are of minority religious status like sometimes don't acknowledge and appreciate just how hard it is for people to turn off this thing that is a really important part of their identity. And that when we ask teachers to share their identity in these other ways – and other things that they love, to tell them that they can't share that, it galls people or it frustrates them. And I, I don't think that's a non-issue. That's why it seems to me this question of coercion is so important because, um, as Emily said, in, in my reading of the presentation before the Supreme Court, the idea of coercion was kind of swept under the rug by Kennedy's, uh, those arguing on Kennedy's behalf, even though he had said he in part prays as to be a model for and as a part of his role as as instructing the kids. Um, so if the kids feel coerced by this act, if players on the team feel coerced, now Kennedy said the, the two kids who asked him not to do it ended up being captains of the JV team, so they couldn't possibly have seen a penalty for not praying with him. But there were other parents who felt their kids uh, felt pressure. Um, and even if nobody reports the pressure, you can still assume that a person in authority to, to divvy out playing time, that there's an implicit pressure there, that that's... That's why that seems so important, and and the Establishment Clause, I'm sure, has important legal uh, aspects too, but the extent to which this behavior and how it took place put pressure on students is interesting. Does it? What if he did it in the parking lot? Would that put put pressure on the students? What if he waited till everybody left? Is it? Is it? Where does his role begin and end? And what implicit pressure exists in um, the religious context that doesn't exist in the sexual or sexuality context? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, so first of all, I just want to say I don't think we ask people who are religious not to bring their religious beliefs to school. You can read the Bible quietly. You can say a silent grace before a meal. You can do lots of things internally. Nobody is stopping you. Internally, but it's internally. I mean, it's it's, it's about, but it's quietly, about. Quietly, to yourself. Right. So it's to yourself, but it's not expressing it to the children, expressing it to the children you're teaching. Yeah. 
And yeah. I mean, so so what is the difference here? Why do we have different rules? I mean, maybe in America we are done having different rules, right? And that is certainly what the conservatives on the Supreme Court think. They agree with you. They think religious expression should be allowed to the same extent as any other kind, right? And and that in fact it's not fair to penalize religious institutions for being religious. And they're bringing that to the fore in school funding cases um, this term as well. Historically, the reason we had this real division, the separation of church and state, was this notion that religious public life can be very divisive and exclusionary. It's like yeah. why the pilgrims left the <laughs> England was that they didn't like the idea that like the Church of England was the state-endorsed institution and they had to use those prayer books and people didn't like that. Like sectarian minority religious people felt like they wanted to live in a place where the state didn't get behind one religion. European countries don't have this same separation of church and state. There's a state endorsed religion and everybody knows that and goes about their business and they like take it for granted that, you know, that's fine and it doesn't mean you have to participate. But there is something it's a different kind of experience to have non-sectarian public institutions than sectarian ones. And that's part of how we've like, I think part of how we've gotten along in this country and had such a multi-ethnic, multi-religious and the success of having that kind of population is by not making people feel like they have to listen to prayers that they don't believe in by making them feel like there is a government and a public institution that kind of transcends that. Um, and that's, I think, what we're really wrestling with here is like whether we're done with all of that history. I went to a Church of England school in, in London for a year, and it was it was interesting. It was kind of crazy. Like they would shunt the Jewish and Muslim kids, of which I was I was a Jewish kid, off into some separate chamber. We were like in a in like this little claustrophobic <laughs> room where we were supposed to do our own thing. It was it was it was funny. And then I, of course I went to a I went to a also went to a Christian school, but it was a private school where there was always prayer being shoved down my throat. I suppose my parents were had chosen a private school, so I had nothing to complain about. But it's like whatever. Didn't didn't seem like a big deal. Well, I do think there's a way in which we all personalize this um, and and that it's pretty deep-seated. I remember talking about these issues of, like years ago with a great aunt of mine who'd grown up as like, you know, a Jewish, mostly assimilated kid in New York in like, what, probably like the 1930s. And she was so upset at the idea of letting religion back into public life because for her it had been, I think, really threatening to have, um, you know, Christianity everywhere. It was something like she'd been mocked for being Jewish, and she really cared about having that separation there. Whereas for me, it just doesn't mean the same thing. But I don't know if that's generational or that's just my experience and whether, you know, there are certainly lots of Americans who do not want religion shoved down their throat. And it really seems like we are heading much more in the direction of state-allowed, state-endorsed religion. But I mean, I guess I, I don't want to be in a position of defending like the anti-CRT people here. I don't want, I'm not, this is not where I'm going, but people are feel that public institutions are shoving things down their children's throats all the time that, that are divisive. Well, but you are buying into the idea that religious shoving down the throat is the same as any other kind of ideology or philosophy, right? Because I mean, 
it would be nice to not be talking about critical race theory since that's not really. But OK, let's talk about anti-racism, because that is something that does sometimes happen in public schools. If you think that that is exactly the same as, you know, whatever evangelical beliefs uh, Coach Kennedy has, then, yeah, it's all the same. It's just that has not been the way we have governed the country. Yeah, no, I know. I know. And I I guess <laughs> I guess I keep, you know, you you can totally imagine that there are teachers who could incorporate prayer and their faith into public school and into into the how they teach and it would, and everyone would be fine with it even you know even when it crossed the line even when there was a couple of Jesus mentions that you didn't want that would be okay and it's and it's the it's as with everything it's the people who just want to really push it and shove it down your throat in the most emphatic way that ruin it for for everybody else because i don't i honestly don't think that sort of minor expressions of faith even done to students, even if they are sectarian, is a problem. I totally agree with you. I also think that already happens all the time in public school. My kids' experiences of public school, there was plenty of that going on. I just, like, I don't think that everyone runs to court every time somebody, like, sings a Christmas carol. It's just not true. Well, this is a case, like, you know, these people ran to court when this coach, the, the school district the coach worked for yeah. didn't even know that he was doing the prayers. It, right, like, until so, he decided he had to make it, like, a public thing, right? And he's no, the one Well, that was kind court. of second round. Well, but, but the school just, no. The school district, his own school district was not clear that he was doing these prayers and they were, it was reported to them and then they. Yes, because first he was doing them really quietly unto himself, which should be allowed and would have been fine. And then other students started joining him. And so the coaches at other schools said like, hey, do you know there's school prayer happening at the 50 yard line in this kind of like coercive way? And then, yes, the school district had to act. If he had kept it to himself the way he like claims that he wants to do next. I don't it does think seem like you here. should bear a penalty for for arguing in bad faith, which based on my reading, there was definitely I mean, c- portraying this as a 15-second fleeting prayer, which is, I think it was Paul Clement who, who, at least in one of the the renderings of the arguments I read, sort of lawyer for the coach sugge- and former solicitor general, yeah? Yes. You know, suggested that it was just a kind of a quick, you know, uh, well, I was about to use Catholic terms, but that wouldn't be the case here. But, you know, a, a quick Hail Mary and off you go, that that clearly wasn't the case. And so when you argue it, it, it seems like you should pay some penalty for being, for for arguing in bad faith. Can I ask another question, though? Thomas. Hail Mary. You used Hail Mary and penalty. It's a football <laughs> game. I wonder if these things are connected. Um, Thomas suggested, Emily, that that the test w- about whether this was, um, you know, g- getting in the way of the separation of church and state was was the only test was whether the coach, it was a part of his job to pray, that that would be the only way it would be a problem. That just kind of seemed like a silly way to define it. Well, it's not what the test has been for whether the government can regulate employee speech, which is what we are talking about here. Like that yeah. just it's whether you're on the clock, whether it's like happening as part of the, it, it, when you're supposed to be performing your official duties. Right. And like clearly that was the case here. But the, the yeah. conservatives on the Supreme Court, they don't want to go down that road. They want to demand actual coercion and then say that it didn't really happen here. So this is fine. And this is just someone exercising their free sp- their freedom of religion um, in this fleeting, private, quiet manner. It's just that the facts don't match up with that. The question of when the job begins and ends is really interesting. Kennedy himself defined it as when the last kid leaves. So Mm. he was clearly on the clock. Right. I mean, look, like I think all of us can also understand that 
this is some if he had wanted it to be this quiet private thing there would be no lawsuit what he wanted was for the kids to be influenced by this he was explicit about how he thinks that like praying to god should be part of the ethos of the team right and so then you can totally imagine how kids would start to join him and so other kids would start to wonder whether they should come as well let's go to cocktail chatter when you're tweeting prayers from the 50 yard line and then having a beard of wash them all down afterwards. What will you be chattering about, John? I'd like to uh, start my cocktail chatter with a shout out to Aaron, who I met on the streets of New York uh, with Anne, and uh, to Milo, his dog. First of all, as as we were recording on Thursday, the uh, GDP numbers came out for the first three months of the year, and the economy shrunk 1.4%. The guess was that it was going to be a 1% gain. By the time people probably listen to this, there will have been lots of um, earthquake rumblings about the state of the economy and more uh, just general fibrillation of the heart. But that's not what my cocktail chatter is. My cocktail chatter is, um, first of all, pay attention to the um, Ohio Republican primary, which is next week, May 3rd. Donald Trump has um, has endorsed J.D. Vance, uh, and it appears to be paying off, at least in polls at the moment. And that's a key battleground state. So it'll that'll be interesting to watch. But my real chatter is uh, provided by our devoted listener, Steve, who lists as his workplace 54th and Broadway, who sent an, a, um, a Reddit thread about a 3,200-year-old Egyptian tablet that lists the excuses that um, people gave for not coming to work. It's at the British Museum, and the the, um, the excuses <laughs> the excuses that people list that the workers listed for not coming to work included making remedies for the scribe's wife, remedies being, I guess, some kind of medical, um, wrapping the corpse of his mother, offering to the god, fetching stone for the scribe. You know, it's a bitch to get to get stone at the stationers these days. Brewing beer, which goes back to our discussion of Samuel Pepys and drinking your morning draft. Apparently, um, the beer that they made might have included uh, antibiotics, including tetracycline, um, which is why brewing beer wasn't just a um, to get drunk. It was actually made them potentially fitter. The other one I liked was the scorpion bit him. Anyway, it lists all of these different reasons for why uh, people uh, didn't show up. And interesting, one included waiting for the cable guy. Um, So uh, anyway, it's at the British Museum, and um, it's pretty cool. What is the waiting for the cable guy of, of, uh, of pharaonic Egypt? 67 of the excuses were simply... That, that they were just ill. <laughs> Emily, what's your chatter? I am watching with great interest the sheriff's office in Los Angeles County. Um, the mm. sheriff there, Alex Villanueva, who is up for re-election. Oh, man. So a video leaked of a deputy sheriff kneeling on the head of a handcuffed inmate. Instead of holding a press conference about how that is really bad and they were going to make sure that doesn't happen again, Villanueva held a press conference in which he put up the pictures of two um, state officials he was blaming for the leak and the L.A. Times reporter who reported the leak. The This, like, big um, display at the press conference said, what did they know and when did they know it? And then he talked about investigating these people, including the L.A. Times reporter. In other words, Villanueva, instead of trying to make sure that, um, you know, people are safe when they're in custody, is trying to turn this around and go after the people who um, are exposing uh, the abuses going 
going on in the department. And this is just like totally part and parcel of how he has operated. Um, it's going to be really interesting in this time when there is more fear of crime to see if the voters in Los Angeles County decide to keep him in office or not. And another thing that's interesting about him is that when he ran, he sort of convinced a lot of liberals that he was going to be a reformer. And he actually got support from groups and other um, county officials who have now totally turned on him. So I'm just really curious to see where this one goes. My chatter. First, a quick job opening at CityCast. We are hiring someone to write our Washington, D.C. newsletter. So you get to share your strong opinions about GoGo and Rock Creek Parkway and the big chair and Audi Field and things like that. If you go to citycast.fm slash jobs, that's a, writing a daily newsletter about what's happening in D.C., the city. My actual chatter is about an interesting thing that happened in Utah, um, which actually I heard about from my colleagues at CityCast Salt Lake, that Evan McMullen, former GabFest guest, an anti-Trump Republican, is running for Senate as an independent in Utah. And the Utah Democratic Party has now decided not to put forward a candidate for the election. Essentially, they're telling Democrats in Utah, go vote for McMullen, a Republican, now admittedly a Republican who's, who's not at all in the fold that most of the Republican Party is. Uh, but it's very interesting thinking because this is – Utah is probably one of the only states where the strategy might work. There is a chunk of independent, disaffected Republicans, and there's a reasonable number of Democrats. And so if the two of those teamed up and against a, an unpopular an unpopular Republican candidate, that independent might win. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen in this case. Mike Lee, who McMullen is running against, uh, is is – you know, he's got a lot of support in Utah. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating strategy. John, did you have a take on that? No, I mean, it's not it's the best they can do in in uh, in Utah. I think what what is interesting about Mike Lee, to me, the most interesting thing about Mike Lee, I know this isn't, is that he is, um, you know, the, some of these texts that have come out from the January 6th investigation show him to be, there was a, a Lee-Cruz split, which is to say Cruz was all in for challenging the outcome of the election and finding whatever um, uh, legal gymnastics could be used to create a fake reason to overthrow the election. Cruz was all for it. Um, his position so clear that the rioters on the 6th could look at his desk and though they were momentarily confused, ultimately realized, of course, he was with their case. Lee had kind of suggested, and Bob Woodward and, and Bob Costa in their book have reporting that suggested Lee kind of got off the bus earlier. Um, the texts show Lee to be much more willing and interested in pushing the president's case um, until it finally kind of became super untenable for anybody. Um, and, and that should put him in a um, difficult position, but given the state of things in the Republican Party at the moment, it won't. Listeners, you tweet chatter to us at, at @slategabfest, and you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. These are the things that you are chattering about with your loved ones. And this week, we have a listener chatter from J.T. Horn about some public lands in Maine. Hello, GabFest. This is J.T. Horn from Stratford, Vermont. I recommend why Maine owes its most breathtaking public lands to one 1972 newspaper story. It's from the April issue of Down East Magazine. I know that David, Emily, and John love a story about the power of journalism to change the world, and this is one of the best I've ever heard. 
Fifty years ago, a local reporter, Bob Cummings, at the Maine Sunday Telegram, got a tip from a surveyor about how the state of Maine had lost track of 400,000 acres of public land that dated back to the early 1800s when Maine was still part of Massachusetts. As Maine was being established as a state, they created a grid of townships that would guide settlement. Each township had a public lot, about a 1,000 acres of land set aside for the future school or the future minister. The rest of the township was to be conveyed out as private land and settled. Since the remote northern part of Maine was never settled, no schoolmaster or minister ever showed up to claim these public lots. Cummings wrote a series of stories about how the state had lost track of the public lots and that timber companies had wrongfully absorbed them as private land. His journalism resonated with the public and embarrassed the legislature and the courts into doing something to address the problem. Long story short, Cummings' 1972 article led the state of Maine to reclaim 400,000 acres of land that are now the backbone of the state parks and state forests that define the rugged beauty of the state. These include sections of the Appalachian Trail, lakefront parks, wilderness areas, and oceanfront hiking trails. To put this in perspective, 400,000 acres is an area larger than the combined size of Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. Or, put another way, it's half the size of Rhode Island. Rarely has one newspaper story or one reporter had so much impact on such a large area or the natural beauty of a state. Thanks very much. Oh my God, what have I done lately? love that story. <laughs> Yeah. Love Down East Magazine, by the way. Down East Magazine, exactly. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced this week by Kevin Bendis. Thank you, Kevin. In its super sub role, our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Huzzah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is Executive Producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at at Slate at Slate Gabfest, not Sleet Gabfest. <laughs> Sleet Gabfest would be an interesting show about sleet and yeah. graupel and hail and a slush, maybe. What was that second word you used? Graupel. Graupel. G-R-A-U-P-E-L, which is a kind of a, I think it's like a sleet. It's a. It's just a word that means sleet. Oh my gosh, that sounds great. A, and also a possible spelling breakfast word. cereal. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, D-I-C-K-E-R-S-O-N, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? 11 years ago yesterday, in 2011, John Dickerson wrote a really prescient piece in Slate. It was on the occasion of President Barack Obama taking a victory lap after revealing his birth certificate. And John was writing about Donald Trump and, in fact, the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from this excellent piece. What's the danger of Trump that a man with money, the ability to attract news coverage, and a crusading ignorance of the facts will hijack the political conversation? You might argue that's pretty much already happened. Sure, Trump has elevated this to a kind of Dada performance art. Uh, but for a lot of people, the political system is already a joke, blah, 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 on armored. This episode has revealed yet another reason Trump is so spectacularly ill-suited to the presidency. The most important task for a president is knowing how to set priorities and maintain a sense of perspective by founding his candidacy around the question of Obama's birth. Trump fails this basic test. So um, this is, I would note, and there's a lot more in this story uh, that where John is predicting things or describing things which have become more and more true. 
but it was four years before Trump even announced his his successful run for presidency. So, John, you saw all these things you sensed in 2011 came true, but so much worse than you imagined. Yeah, well, so that, that piece, first of all, uh, it's very weird to read that piece in the light of reality today. The second half of the piece essentially says Barack Obama came out and had to prove that he was, in fact, born. He showed his birth certificate. Um, and, you know, I sort of said that Obama was was trying to use this flashpoint moment, which he was saying proved that the press was c- captivated by stupid and silly things. He was using it for his own purposes, and therefore he was kind of playing into that process. In <laughs> that sin, which is of is like a paper cut compared to um, what Donald Trump subsequently in the next 11 years and then for four years in the office participated in, that it now 11 years later seems kind of ridiculous. It's just at the time, 11 years ago, it was probably worth pointing out the way in which Obama, I mean, clearly the point of the piece was that this was a stunt by Donald Trump and that we all looked awful, those of us who were covering it and paying attention to it. And the fact that it had gotten to the point where President Obama had to actually bring forth his birth certificate and that that was a crack in the system. And and my point about Trump was, yeah, but the people he's talking to think the system is so screwed that why not have him as their uh, as their fighter, which we obviously see that they ultimately ended up doing. Yeah, I was struck by this part of the piece where you said the White House would dearly love it if the GOP became the Trump party. It makes uh. Republicans <laughs> look loopy and unserious to the voters who will decide the general election. It creates tension within the party as more earthbound Republicans try to kill discussion of the issue. Wow. So that would have been true for in 2012, but the yeah. uh, party was party has significantly changed then, since then. Um, we, it's also worth remembering in history what is extraordinary to me about this moment, which is not the birtherism so much, but we should note, first of all, of course, that a presidency that ended with the lie about the 2020 election, in fact, was born with this lie. And that Donald Trump boasts about the fact that it was birtherism that gave him his vault into the into the tops of the Republican Party. Um, and that's important. But the other thing is that while Barack Obama was doing all of this, while he was having to go to the White House press room and prove that he was born, he was also making the final call on the bin Laden raid, that this was going on at the same time. And it seems to me that there is no other moment of that brings into perfect relief the way in which the presidency can be both the most vital and difficult and challenging of of um, challenges, and then the f- most frivolous and stupid is it at this particular po- moment 11 years ago. I, I remember vividly because that I've been to maybe two or three actual White House correspondence dinners, and I went to that one and was sitting a table away from Trump, who Obama just mocked, like viciously, hilariously mocked, and I think – like, do not understate how important that humiliation was for Trump's Trump psyche. Uh, and that then it turns out that after Obama had given the speech, it, that the bin Laden raid was was essentially concurrent with that and uh, retrospectively an astonishing moment. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch- 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 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.